You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go. Hey, winners. Welcome back to Win the Day. The quote for this episode comes from Mark Twain and says, The fear of death follows from the fear of life. A man who lives fully is prepared to die at any time. This is the most unique episode we've ever done on the podcast. For some context, in episode 109, I interviewed Dr. Mark Goulston, one of the world's leading psychiatrists, communication experts, and mental health practitioners. He's also been a hostage negotiation trainer for the FBI, a consultant for companies like Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, and Disney, a contributor to the Harvard Business Review, and author of nine books that have been translated into more than 20 languages. In that first episode, we spoke about his incredible career, how to overcome anxiety and depression, and how to speak with others, especially your teenage children, about mental health. Clips from that episode have gotten millions of views online, and it's because one of Mark's many superpowers is helping us initiate conversations we all need to start having, not just with other people, but with ourselves too. And since we first met, Mark has become a big mentor for me. He's helped me with so much, and he's so bloody good at what he does, and he's good at so many things. And I always look forward to any opportunity I have to catch up with him. And recently, Mark let me in on some big news. It's not my news to share, so I'll leave it to him to introduce it to us in a moment. But this episode is all about recognizing that life is short and must be lived and how to get clear on what's most important. Before we begin, as always, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day. Share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with my good friend, Dr. Mark Goulston. Mark, great to see you. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. I can't believe we've only met in person once. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And we've been in contact uh, uh, frequently, and <laughs> I am honored to call myself one of your mentors. I'm planning to do that as long as I'm around. <laughs> well, you have some news for us. Do you want to sort of set the table in terms of some of the interesting developments that you've had in your, in your personal life to set the tone for what we're going to talk about today? Well, a little over a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with something called follicular lymphoma, and it's a slow-growing cancer of the lymph nodes. And that shook me up a little bit, but then it's something that people can live with for years. And my oncologist said, let's just follow the labs, follow your symptoms. If you're not symptomatic and the labs are okay, let's just wait till you get sick, and then we'll treat you, and the treatments are pretty good. Something that's dogged me is I, I've had this case of anemia that doesn't seem to respond to anything. And that's separate from the lymphoma. I received a bunch of treatments, including a rather expensive one, uh, which was $10,000 an injection every three weeks, but it was paid for by Medicare. I am a little bit older. And that didn't seem to work. So we did a bone marrow biopsy a few months ago. And it turns out I have a condition called myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS. And when they looked into the bone marrow, I was at high risk. And what high risk means is that untreated, I would move into AML, acute myeloid leukemia, between five months to two years to longest I could go without moving into it would probably be four years. And so that's been quite a journey. And also finding great doctors, which I'm fortunate to, and I found a wonderful doctor at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, so Dr. Ron Paquette, and then an equally wonderful hematologist at the City of Hope, which is a big cancer hospital. And we were trying to determine 
should we go right into this thing called the bone marrow transplant, which is an organ transplant where they take out all your marrow and replace it with the donors. And, and I'm really fortunate in that all my three children are donors, and I don't seem to have an antibody response. So uh, in the event that I need to do it, there'll be matches. Uh, but everything has a risk. So if I get this definitive treatment, there's only a 50% survival rate for someone my age. And there are certain medications that might bring down these things called monoblasts. So I'm at about nine or 10, which is what alarm people, because when you get to 20% monoblasts, it crosses over into this leukemia, which is much more difficult to treat. I'm in the best place I've ever been in my life. It's phenomenal. I mean, I'm the calmest, the most content. The prospect of dying is teaching me things that living never did. There were things that I was abstractly aware of, but they didn't really penetrate me. Everyone's dying as well. It's like we, we all know that. We all know that it's the most certain thing that you could possibly hope for, but it's rare to be given. Was it 1.8 years on average with your condition if you follow down that course without going down the bone marrow route? We all know that we're all going to die at some stage, and it's no tragedy to die if we've lived well, like the Mark Twain quote reminded us. But what did having a little bit more of a fixed time frame in terms of death teach you about what it means to be alive? Well, I'm trying to figure it out because I don't think I'm in denial. I'm just incredibly calm. I've been recording these videos called I'm Dying to Tell You. I have to revise it to, well, I'm not quite dying, but I'm pretty mortal. <laughs> and I need to tell you some stuff. And I record about 47 episodes. I'm not sure what I'll do with them. But I wake up every morning at three and I say, oh, this just came to me. So the first episode is called Michelangelo Dying. I didn't know that I was going to keep recording episodes. And Michelangelo is credited with saying, I saw the angel in the marble and I carved to set it free. It's kind of a touching episode because I used to do house calls to dying patients. And at the end of their lives, I would try to help them make peace with their lives. I remember seeing someone who was just this iconic, beloved hugely popular figure with not the best personal life, which you know, frequently happens. And I remember I visited him and some of these powerful people liked that I could be direct with them. And I said, you look like crap and I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I know you. What's up? And he looked at me and he appreciated the directness because everybody's <laughs> freaking out. And he said, I don't think I've ever done anything important in my life. I said, you get a hospital named after you. You've created thousands of jobs. The public loves you. And he looked at me with a wry smile. He said, don't con a con man, especially when he's dying. I've got all the love that money can buy. And then he said, and everything I thought was unimportant is, and everything I thought is important isn't. And I've run out of time to fix that. So I remember I used to do house calls to people like this, and I would leave them thinking, you remember that, Mark. There's a pony in that. So for me, Michelangelo dying is, I saw what's unimportant in life. That's the marble. And it's remarkable how much of life is unimportant. Now that said, like I'm 75 and so I'm at a different stage of my life than a lot of your viewers and listeners. And so I understand that 15, 20 years ago, you know, it would be important. I still have to be able to keep making a living and whatnot. But still, I think you could go through something and think, what's really unimportant in my life? And when I was able to just lop it off with no hesitation, what became important to me literally glowed, you know, like an angel in the marble. Something else I learned, and I may get a little emotional, one of my other episodes is let people care about you. 
So I've always been a caretaker, doctor, therapist. I always had trouble letting anyone care about me. If anyone tried to, no, I'm, I'm fine. You know, you, you just do well. You, you just get through this. And what happened is apparently there's a few people who care about me, including you. What I discovered is when they would ask me, what's going on with you, Mark? And I started to share what was going on. I just started crying. And I couldn't really control it. I'm right on the brink of it now. I, I hope it's not a boo-hoo, poor, poor me. It just happens. When I've discovered people caring about me, I say, I, I'd apologize. I'd be embarrassed. And every one of them, because I'm, I'm not sure that I would do this with someone who doesn't care about me at all. And with every one of them, they say, don't you apologize. And I said, well, I don't want to burden you. And a number of them have said, this is not a burden, Mark. This is a gift because this might be one of the more intimate conversations I've had, period, a long time. And it's interesting. Some of these people are very busy and and it would often lead, they'd say, look at me, Mark. And you know, I could hardly look at them. And they say, uh, 24-7, you call me 24-7. You know, and I thank them. And uh that said, I'm not going to blow the invitation. <laughs> but I think if you're someone who's used to caring about others and has trouble letting people care about you, there's a lot of people who would like the gift of caring about you. It's a gift to them. Now, we need a little humor because this is a little bit you know, morbid. Uh, <laughs> if you're someone who doesn't care about others, who isn't prone to giving to the world, if you're someone who's a, a taker, a complainer, or a whiner, you may have already used up all your chips. Yeah, you can see people who post on social media, for, you know, I broke a fingernail and they want to get 100 likes on a, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. On a post and, and seeking that attention. Someone like you who has built up a, an unbelievable amount of goodwill with people all over the world over decades with your incredible career. Have you thought about communicating broadly with those people to fill them in on exactly what you're going through, to give more of those people an opportunity to express their gratitude and appreciation rather than keeping it to well, yourself alone? Well, it's interesting you bring that up because you'll post this down the road, but I was waiting for today to kind of go public because I have a client that I've been coaching and they're under a lot of stress and they're taking a very important exam. And I think in our working together, this particular person and their family care about the work I'm doing and, you know, knock on whatever, I think they'll do well. But I didn't want them to find out about this until they took the exam. So it's not a distraction for them? Well, it is a little bit distracting, you know, when someone you care about lays this on you. Yeah. It creates urgency to finish with the impact that you want to have, which I think is great. It's like knowing as a time frame, there's productivity techniques like the Pomodoro method where people literally set a timer and at the end of the, and I do that with a lot of my stuff. I'll set a timer if I'm on social media to make sure I don't spend too long doing it. I'll set a timer in many cases for the work I'm doing so I can reward myself for five minutes after that. And it's like you have a timer that's created urgency for you to think about what's the impact that's most important, what are the relationships that's most important, what can you get out of your head and out of your heart to be able to help people in that time that you have. So have you felt that urgency translate in terms of productivity each day? And where do you find that energy directing you towards? I've never been as disciplined as you, so I don't know. You, you, pro <laughs> you probably won many more days than I have. But... Uh, <laughs> This thing about uh, I'm dying to tell you these videos that I'm collecting. Here's one I'll just give you. And they're somewhat comical. Uh, there was one that I did not too long ago, and I say, and I say, 
Welcome to another episode of I'm Dying to Tell You, or what I'd like to refer to as dying at the improv, because <laughs> these are unscripted, unedited. What you see is what you get. There's no other team member, and it's a Clint Eastwood first take. And so I hope there'll be something of value to you. And in the episode that I did that, so here's something that I hope your entrepreneurs will get something from. What I talked about in that episode is visionary dying. And some years ago, uh, I had a mentor named Warren Bennis. Most of your listeners or viewers are too young, but if you look up Warren Bennis, you know, Warren Bennis was to leadership, but, uh, you know, Elon Musk is to technology. And I was blessed to have eight mentors, and he was one of them. And some years ago, we were talking about how do visionaries look at the world? Steve Jobs, Elon Musk. And we came up with this, and this is probably worth writing down if you're listening or viewing, because everybody seems to do it. We came up with the three Ds of being a visionary thinker. The first D is you define reality. And the reality is something that nobody else can see, but you can. So for Steve Jobs, it's personal computer at everyone's desk, an iPhone that does all these things. For Elon Musk, it's batteries in cars, privatized space travel. And so you define reality beyond what anyone can imagine. That's what makes you a visionary. The second D is you declare your intention to make it so. This may be impossible. In fact, the best visions are impossible at the time you come up with the vision, but we're going to make it happen. You know, Steve Jobs discovered the graphical user interface and the mouse at Xerox Park, and he looked at his buddy Wozniak, and they said, we're going to go make this thing happen. I mean, people aren't going back to typing after they see this. And then the third D is you decide strategy. So how are we going to make it happen? After that, you cross over into operations and managers. Who's going to do it? Who's going to do what? How do we hold them accountable? And of course, if you're a startup, you got to get into some of those weeds. But the bigger you get, the more just staying with the first three, define a reality, declare intention, and decide strategy holds you. So I applied this to visionary dying. I have a real clear picture of what a good death looks like. So for me, the main elements are, I don't particularly want to have a lot of pain and suffering at the end. The second thing is, I don't want to put my friends and family through a lot of pain and suffering. I will not be a burden to any of them. I'm going to have to work that out because they're going to say, Dad, you're not a burden, and we might get into an argument over that. Uh, the third is, I'm the creative force for about six projects. And those projects are relying on me to be the sort of the visionary. And I don't want to leave any of those people hanging. And then the final thing is I'm going to share whatever I've learned through life, but I never really scale. I mean, I, you know, I have books, they've done okay, but I've been a one-on-one -on -one type of guy. I, I'm not someone who, let's scale this, let's create courses. Uh, I'm sort of an idiot. I have 10 books, you know, five bestsellers. I have never created a course for any of them you know, because it just wasn't who, who I am. So to me, I see that picture of a good death. That's my intention. I see it so clearly. And my strategy is get the absolute best people to help you do that. And I'm in amazing hands uh, with a hematologist at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles and the City of Hope. And we've been in great contact. I'm excited because I've been chomping at the bit because I've had this MDS now diagnosed for over two months and it's accelerating, but I believe this week I'll start the medication, which has lots of side effects. I asked the hematologist, 
does it have brain fog? Because I'd like to do some interviews. <laughs> yeah, and they, said, they said, you might be itching like crazy. You might be like this. <laughs> you know, you might be short of breath, but we think you're good with the brain fog. So voila, here I am next week. I might be, you know, a big mess. Something I'm going to share with you. Uh, there's a project I'm involved with where I'm kind of the sort of the creator. And, and I want to share it with you. And I'm, I'll give you a little gift. One of my close friends is a fellow named Colonel Chris Kalenda, and he was the head of something called the Sabre Six Foundation. He is, and those are about 700 paratroopers from some of the past wars. We are like brothers like you and I are brothers. In fact, he uh, he recently did an 1,800-mile bicycle ride to the graves of the six paratroopers that fell under his command, and I think he went from the Midwest all the way to Arlington. And here's something we came up with. And if you're listening to this, reach out to me, and if for some reason or other I'm not here, I'll put you in touch with Chris Kalenda. So here's something else that I'm learning you know, from going through this. There's a saying I learned from Mr. Rogers. I, I never met him, but it was in one of his documentaries. And he said, better to be deep and simple than shallow and complicated, because your end users, as soon as... You make something the least bit complicated, they smile politely, and they don't implement. And it's a real problem. So whatever you're doing, from your company to wanting to have a marriage that stands the test of time, keep it deep and simple. So one of the things that we came up with, which we're using with the Sabre 6 Foundation, I told Chris, I said... I think we just came up with a novel approach to PTSD, to culture change, to stress, to burnout, and to parenting. And what we came up with is a three-step thing that you develop a muscle for, and we're launching it as something called the 22-Day Triggered Mastery Challenge. 22 days stands for the 22 days that veterans die by suicide. Mm. And what we realized is that what happens in all those situations, PTSD, burnout, uh, parenting issues, marital issues, is when people are already stressed and they get triggered, that trigger almost always leads to making it worse. So the first step, and here is actually a, a wristband. You can use this with your family. Uh, it says Sabre 6 Foundation. And here are the three steps. So here, here's one for you. And so the first step, you say to yourself when you're feeling triggered, the first thing is to say, I feel triggered, which is different than saying I'm being triggered. Because if you say I'm being triggered, you got to retaliate. I'm being triggered. They're not going to get away with that. I'm a victim. I'm, I'm going to retaliate. But if instead of that, you could say I'm feeling triggered, it sort of keeps it inside you and you don't have to retaliate. The second step is downshift. So if you're driving a motorcycle or stick shift car, when you want to gain control of the road, you downshift. The torque goes up, you pull the road towards you, and you don't go off some cliff. So, you know, next time your wife or your kid or someone cuts you off uh, in traffic, does that. First step is, I'm feeling triggered. Not, I'm triggered, I got to get even. I'm feeling triggered. And then the next step is downshift. Downshift means don't make it worse. Don't get angry. Don't explode. Just downshift. And then the third step is reframe. And reframe means 
look at it differently. So for instance, a car cuts you off in traffic, your old way is road rage. But using this, I'm feeling triggered, just got cut off, downshift, don't go nutty, reframe. What if we pulled over and before we duked it out, he said, I'm really sorry I got fired today. My kid's in the emergency room. There's a good chance, unless you're someone who just likes, you know, you're into road rage. (laughs) There's a good chance that you'll calm yourself down or that person will calm you down by telling you that. In my book, Just Listen, I'm a little bit humbled, but some people have said it's the best opening anecdote ever in a book. (laughs) What was happening is I was having a terrible, terrible day. I mean, I couldn't do anything right. And I was driving in Los Angeles and I cut off this guy and his wife. He was in a big pickup truck. I cut him off because I'm just out of it. And he honks his horn. And, you know, and I just keep driving and then I cut him off again. And I'm so out of it. He pulls in front of me with his big pickup truck. I'm like in a trance. And I pull up behind him. And I'm just staring out at the, uh, into his, the cab of his truck. And his wife is yelling at him, you know, don't go out, don't go out, don't go out. You know, and he's, I'm just seeing, you know, their silhouettes. And he comes out and he comes over to my car and he bangs on the window. And because I'm so out of it and he's probably a foot taller than me, I lower the window. (laughs) (laughs) What do you do? And he said, you cut me off in traffic twice and I'm going to pull you out of that car. You don't get to do that to me. And I looked at him and I said, have you ever had one of those days where everything you do goes wrong? I mean, everything you do goes wrong. And you're hoping you'll find someone who can put you out of your misery. Are you the guy? (laughs) He goes, what? I said, I I don't cut off people in traffic. I don't cut off people twice. You know, I'm having, are you the guy who's going to put me out of my misery? And he said, now calm down. I said, well, you calm down. You didn't have this day. You you think I do this every day? I mean, this is a, this is a terrible, terrible day. He said, it's going to be okay. I said, well, I don't, I, I don't think the day is done yet. I, I think it's going to get worse. So are you going to put me out of my misery or not? And he said, no, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. And uh, I think there was even a point, the window was down. He puts his hand on my shoulder and say, it's going to be okay. You know, and I sort of grunt and then I see him going back into a, his pickup truck. And then, you know, there he is. And he looks in the rear view mirror and he waves to me. It'll be okay. <laughs> Everyone watching that's like, hey, this was unexpected. I, I'm not sure uh, how I was able to downshift and... Uh, Well, actually, what happened is he reframed Mm. his rage towards me. And that context and perspective just shifts everything. You are the most empathic person I've ever met. What do you see when you interact with people throughout their day and how they feel about their lives? Well, I think a lot of it started when I was a suicide prevention specialist. And I think part of it is because uh, in our last interview, I'd mentioned that I dropped out of medical school twice. And my first mentor, I didn't even know what a mentor was, was the dean of students. And he he saw something in me that I never saw. He saw goodness. I don't know that he saw any skills because I was broken. He saw a future for me that I didn't see. He said, uh, you have no idea how much the world needs what you have. And you're not going to know it until you're 35. But you have to make it till you're 35. So he saw something in me that I didn't have to perform to be worthy of. He saw a future for me that I certainly didn't see. And then he said, and you're going to let me help you. Even back then, I wouldn't ask for help. If he said, uh, if I can help you, give me a call, I probably wouldn't have called him and I might not be here today. But he wouldn't allow that. 
And so he stood up for me and in the medical school probably saw something that he saw. But that flipped a switch inside me. And here's my approach to suicide prevention. And it's interesting because researchers in suicide prevention and depression would send me their kids and I'd say, do you have any interest in what I do or how I do it? They'd say, no. Well, why are you sending me your kids? You could just send them over to your university. And they said, well, we don't have your track record. Are you interested in what I do or how I do it? No, not if it's not evidence-based and you don't have a control group. And so this is why I didn't scale. I just say, send me your kid. And going back to the deep and simple thing, because I've been given a lot of thought because I'm retired. I don't do this. I, you know, I do presentations and teach parent groups about how to get through to their kids. But imagine you at a low point. And if you're listening or viewing, imagine yourself at a low point. To me, it was very simple how to help you. Uh, and I even gave it a name, surgical empathy. Don't check box is, and keep a clinical distance. Surgical empathy, go in. And to me, it was two simple things. They've got a world of hurt inside them in which suicide makes sense. So they got a world of hurt going on and they just can't take it anymore. So find a way to lessen that hurt. And also going back to the Michelangelo thing, I know that somewhere inside them, they have hope. They can't see it. They can't feel it. But I know they have hope. So if there's a way to lessen their hurt so that it's livable and help them find the hope so they can feel it. If you feel hope, you got a future. So in your daily interactions, when you see people who feel like they're maybe not connected with the present as much as they should be, either they're worried about something happened in the past, they're worried about, you know, anxious about the, the future, you're trying to help them see who they could be, connect them with that hope, connecting with the idea of their best self through little positive things that you can, that you can do. I think the, uh, there's, there's another anecdote in Just Listen that people seem to like, and we may have covered it or you may have read about it. And, and this is really the power of getting where someone's coming from with zero agenda other than to alleviate fear and pain and even anger. The anecdote is I was trying to see a CEO about something or other, and it wasn't easy to get an appointment with him. Finally, I got an appointment with him. I get into his office. And, you know, he's fiddling with papers and he has glasses and they're kind of lowered. And, and it's clear to me that, you know, the last thing he has on his mind is meeting with me. So, again, I can be a little feisty with people. And so I looked at him and I said, uh, how much time you got for me? And he looked up from his glasses and said, with a look that was, I think it's about over. And, and he just said, what? I said, yeah, go look on your calendar. How much time you got for me? And he's getting a little bit ticked. He said, 20 minutes. I said, we're into minute three. I have something to talk to you about that I think is worthy of your undivided attention, which you can't give to me because you got something on your mind that's way more important than meeting with me. It's, I have a feeling it's way more important than your even being here. So here's the deal. Take the remaining 16 minutes, kick me out, we'll reschedule, or you don't have to see me again, but take that 16 minutes and take care of whatever's on your mind because it's not fair to you, it's not fair to me, it's not fair to other people. You're not here. And he's like a big football-type guy, and he starts to tear up. And I think, oh, oh, you're not supposed to make them cry <laughs> in the business world, Mark. You know, come on, come, come on, come on, come on. You know, you know, you know, use your inner LinkedIn voice. Don't make them cry. <laughs> uh, sorry, LinkedIn. And he looks at me, and his eyes are a little bit 
tearful, and he says, you know something that nobody else here knows because I'm real private. And people 20 yards from here don't know it because I'm real private. My wife's having a biopsy and it doesn't look good. And she's much stronger than me. And she told me to come to the office. But you're right, I'm not here. I said, you shouldn't be here. Make a call. You know, cancel the rest of your day. Just go be with her. And then he looks at me, you know, and his eyes kind of dry up and he shakes his shoulders and he says, I'm not as strong as my wife, but I'm pretty strong. You know, I served in Vietnam. And then he looked at me and he said, and you've got my undivided attention and you got your full 20 minutes. And it turned out okay. But, you know, you can see how that can, you know, sort of win friends and influence people. Mm, absolutely. I heard once about 11 years ago when I first moved to L.A., someone I was watching a speaker who said people just want to feel like they matter. Someone doesn't feel like they matter if it's such a surface level thing. If you can cut through that using things like surgical empathy, principles from how to win friends and influence people, it's just such a great way of being able to have the foundation of amazing relationships. Something I encourage people to do a lot of is just to send audio messages uh, on your phone just to check in with people. Just I was just thinking of you, let me know what I can do to help and just give me an update on what's going on with you. If you can do that every single day for an entire year, you will get a massive amount of things. You don't do it to get something back, you do it just to give. And a byproduct of that is that people will turn around and say, what can I do to help you? And if you've got a good thing that they can then help you with, then it means you get access to a lot more opportunity that other people will never, ever get to experience. And most people won't even come close to doing that activity. Yeah, that reminds me of another one of my uh, episodes from I'm Dying to Tell You. And I'm trying to spread this. And you didn't even know it when we met for lunch. But maybe you'll recall. I'm really blessed. I have an amazing wife. She's an amazing mother and grandmother. And uh, we're lucky we get to see our four grandchildren every day. And they're four and a half and under. And I'll do my best to race home just to see him. And when I'm with my wife and two daughters and my grandchildren, and we're in the kitchen, nobody pays attention to me. I mean, zero. Nobody looks at me. Nobody asks me a question. I'm not exactly ignored, but I'm not included. And I made this interesting discovery because I could be there and I thought, well, nobody's paying attention. If I was kind of my grumpy father, I would think, I'm going to go somewhere, you know, check my emails, you know, check my master of the universe projects that are going on. But I got a hint that something's going on because even though my daughters can be multitasking, looking at their phones and whatnot, if I picked up my phone and looked at it, everybody gave me the stink eye, like, what are you looking at your phone for? <laughs> and on one occasion, and only one occasion, I said, well, no one's paying any attention to me. It was so pathetic. I only did that once. I mean, oof, it just gives <laughs> me the chills how <laughs> pathetic that was. Uh, but I thought maybe something's going on. So the next step I took is to put the phone on the table and I wouldn't look at it. And they weren't including me, but I think about what was on my phone. I'm thinking, ooh, am I getting some fancy message? Ooh, you know, am I going to get a chance to be... Uh, famous for my nanosecond in the world. Look, I don't mean to offend you if being an influencer is important. It's the way of the world. Go get, knock yourself out on Instagram and TikTok. So I, I apologize if I was slightly sarcastic. <laughs> but, you know, when you're dying, it's not that important how many likes you have, how many loves you have is important. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I noticed is that my grandchildren, they'd be playing and 
Maybe they picked up that lonely grandpa was just sitting at the end of the table, so they would occasionally look at me as they're playing. And then here was the great revelation. I was going to sit there with zero on my mind. I mean zero, which is getting easier and easier for me to do. (laughs) And when my grandchildren would look at me, I would bathe them in utter delight. And when they looked at my eyes, they would see my eyes sparkling with a look that says, I am so glad you're here. It hurts. And they would take second takes. They look, they go play, and then they look, you know, and I'm not sure I did a good job doing that with my kids when they were growing up because I was busy making a living. You know, I check boxes. I love you. I'll see you later. But, you know, I was racing out. I had to make a living. But this is really special. When I bathe them in utter delight, there's no ego going on. There's no ambition going on that's seducing me away from being utterly, utterly present. And so I'm trying to develop that practice. You can do that with a waiter or waitress. You can do it with anyone. Uh, Of course, if they're rushed, they may not get it. But if you're going to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress finishes and says, is there anything else? You look at their name tag and calmly say their name and you look in their eyes with utter delight and you say, yeah, Nancy, thank you. And they'll look at you like my grandchildren do, and and they'll go, okay. And then you watch them walk away from the table, and they shake their shoulders like, what the heck was that? <laughs> real listening is so is so scarce, isn't it? When someone actually, like real communication, it's so rare, which yeah. might lead into this next question I wanted to ask you. What do you want to be most remembered for? He gave more than he took. And what about a message for your children? Is there anything in particular that you want them to always remember or a piece of advice that you've given them or just a message that they should carry in their hearts forever? Just remember that I love you beyond life. And if you're ever feeling alone or lonely, then you can remember that and it helps you feel a little bit better. That's really going to help me rest in peace. I once heard a quote fairly recently that said, um, if you could give your children any gift, it would be the ability for them uh, to see themselves through your eyes. And it's like, wow, if my daughter or my son could look at themselves the way that I look at them or the way that your children could look at themselves the way that you look at them, what an incredible gift it would be. But as a father of, of two kids and still fairly new into the parenting journey, the more life experience I have, you just get more and more grateful for your own parents and what they did for you, even if things weren't perfect, which of I don't know anyone who's perfect, but in in many cases, as you get older, you start to see just how complex life can be. You've mm-hmm. got career purposes. Maybe there's a good segue to talk to something else I wanted to bring up with you today, actually, and that's a home with two working parents while you're adapting to having young children. It's almost the perfect storm in terms of a relationship. What can couples do to make sure that they can retain that harmony in the home and reduce conflict in the home at a time as they're trying to figure all that stuff out? Well, I write for a lot of places, and one place that I write frequently is Newsweek. I'm a founding member of their expert forum. So if you look up Newsweek, Goulston, and there's an article, The Seven-Year Itch 2.0. And many of you listening or viewing will not know what The Seven-Year Itch is, but it was a play, it was a movie, a famous movie in which Marilyn Monroe's dress got blown up in the middle of uh, Manhattan. And the seven-year itch was a term referring to when romance goes out of a marriage. And I wrote the article because I think, and I hope I'm wrong, that we're entering an epidemic of that. Because especially with working uh, mom, working dad, 
what's happening is a lot of younger generation, X, Y, and Z, before you have children, you can really clip along. I mean, this is great. And you don't have to be patient. And people I know in those generations talk faster than I think. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> but you give birth to an infant. It requires a level of patience that you don't have. And what I'm seeing with a number of couples, now the wealthy, wealthy couples, they say, we don't have that problem. We have six nannies and uh, <laughs> and a living. But, you know, I mean, to the 99% of people who are not that lucky, what I'm noticing, and I hope I'm wrong, is that when a wife becomes a mom, especially if she's a working, a working mom, at least a couple things happen. That infant requires patience that she doesn't have. And that infant sometimes won't sleep, won't feed, pull a tantrum in the middle of the supermarket. And what happens is that young mom doesn't want to admit to herself how angry she is towards that baby because it makes her feel, I'm a lousy mom. I shouldn't have had kids. And what she does is she will displace that onto her husband as opposed to bearing her neck saying, oh, I don't know if we should have had children. I think I'm a terrible mom. And and the husband would be delighted. Oh, you know, I'm out of the crosshairs. I'm good to go. You're a great mom. You're just tired. But that doesn't happen in couples because it's too threatening for a young mom to think, God, I, just, I was so angry at that our kid. You know, I just felt like yelling and screaming. So instead, they will displace the anger onto their husband who comes in and he feels frequently he can't do anything right. Everything is wrong. Add to that. You once had a career, but the bond you feel, mom to infant, this life that you gave birth to, the surge of oxytocin and emotional connection, it's beyond anything you could have ever imagined. And when you're breastfeeding that infant, and you know after a few weeks or month, that infant is looking up at you and smiling, nothing else exists, especially your husband or your career. Your career becomes a job. Oh, and by the way, you can't go to work and say, can I tell you how amazing it is to be a mother? No, you have to suppress that and give high fives to the, the jerk who came in because he landed a deal for seven figures and you don't want to be a Debbie Downer. So this is happening a lot. And add to that, the husband is going on trips with associates, meeting clients. He's running into women who look at him with the same adoring eyes that his wife once did. And he's out there feeling adored, and he comes home, and everything he does is wrong. And I bring up seven years, because if it's seven years, and let's say you don't immediately have children, but it's seven years, you know, there's a good chance you'll have, you know, a four-year-old, maybe, uh, maybe a five-year-old. And that's about the time when husband, dad, gets the bond with his children, daddy, daddy, they're, they're not solely wrapped around mom. And he comes home. She's not greeting him. It's the dog wagging the tail and the kid saying, daddy, daddy, daddy. So what happens is the husband, dad says, I get a good relationship with my kid. I, I really feel secure in this bond. It's not quite the same thing as the bond to their mom, but I'm locked and loaded. But when I look at my wife and we look at each other, we don't like each other anymore. You know, we have a right to, you know, have fun. She's not happy with me, and I'm not happy with her not being happy with me. And geez, I got another trip coming up, and I haven't acted on it yet, but can't wait to see Mary. 
So that article is there. And here's the solution. The solution is, I'm also a great believer that being reactive can destroy almost anything. When you're in a reactive mindset and you act on it, you're going to make almost every situation worse. If you can be proactive, which is rare, you might have a chance to prevent that. So if what I'm sharing with you or you read the article rings true when you want to prevent being part of this epidemic, what I'm advising couples is you proactively find a way, have a dinner, just the two of you, or if you can't get away, you know, when the kids are asleep, uh, make sure you do this, you know, schedule it. What you want to do in that dinner is bring up anything that gets in the way of either of you looking forward to seeing the other, because once upon a time, you each put a smile in each other's face. You were in love. You were in like. And so what you bring up is anything that the other person is doing or failing to do that is causing you to not look forward to seeing them. The ground rules are try to be civil, but if someone gets really feisty, they got to keep talking till they're talking from the hurt and fear underneath. What's the hurt? I can't remember the last time you liked me. I can't remember the last time you respected me. I can't remember the last time you were proud to be with me in public. And it's killing me. And what I'm afraid of is feeling those feelings because it might be over. And so you bring up those and then you seal it uh, that evening with an apology for something, a sincere apology. And once you get all this stuff off your chest, you look into each other's eyes and you see why you fell in love with each other and why you still love them. How does someone separate stress in the present with the recognition that the marriage might be over? It's time for each of you to be better individually to go and find yourselves, which is maybe a very difficult task to do. Two working parents, chaos of, you know, of having two, three young kids running around, financial pressures. Obviously, things are getting more and more expensive. I think what would be a helpful deterrent is to play it out what the casualties in the family will be if you get divorced, what you're introducing your children to, uh, the potential of the uh, alienated parent syndrome, uh, which is murder, the potential of children acting out in very destructive ways. Teenagers often hit a level of rage that chills everyone, including them. They don't even know what they're enraged about. And that rage is very close to very destructive behavior. So you might want to play that out in your mind. Uh, you know, they talk about the importance of role models in life. They're so helpful in developing resilience. You might want to play out not wanting to be like certain role models who got divorced in which the whole family just fell apart. Who is it more important for you in your role as a psychiatrist and, and other mental health practitioners? Is it more important to talk to the parent or is it more important to talk to that teenager who's feeling all of that rage? Well, I think it's equally important to to talk to each of them. I know this goes against what's conventional, but you can have something where everybody in the family has their own therapist, the couple, the husband, the wife, the kids. First of all, no one can afford that. Second of all, you, you really run the risk of, this is one of the challenges of being a therapist, is you need to develop a rapport enough so that your patients come back. And then you try to leverage the rapport so that you can share with them things that might not be easy to hear, but they need to hear. So something I would say to you, here's a little bit of coaching, because I think the world of you and you're one of the loose ends in my life, so I can't die too soon. <laughs> I think presence is really important. 
And I think one of the best ways to be present is to be declarative, which is not the same thing as motivational. So declarative is you stand for something that's not about you being right. It's about standing for something that will benefit whoever you're with. And you declare that. So there's someone I'm coaching and his business is really blowing up. I mean, it's going to be big, big. You know, you're really lousy at conflict. I said, now here's the deal. You're the visionary. You're the founder. You can be terrible at conflict. But if I'm an investor, you better have someone who's good at conflict to be the hitman. And by the way, you're going to be very vulnerable to not just delegating to that hitman. You're going to abdicate. And if you abdicate, they're going to have you over a barrel. So you've got to be really clear that when you fill in functions that you're not good at, that they don't, they're in a position to take advantage of you and you have no idea what you're in store for. Mm. Reminds me of a quote I heard the other day. It says that people who win wars are not the same people who are good at making peace. Different roles for different, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, for different yeah, tasks. Yeah. And to this person's credit, he said, no, I got to get better at conflict because, you know, I'm not that good at conflict at home. And I think the, the empathic emphatic is, uh, you know, the good news you're a, is you're a genius. The bad news is you owe it to the full expression of your genius to eliminate anything that gets in the way of it. And one of the things that's going to get in the way of it is you suck at conflict and you don't have to get good at it as long as you have someone who is good at it. But if you could get good at it and be also the inventor visionary, you would have it all because investors would like it to all be packaged with you. You're such a genius, they'll accept that if you, you, know, you have a hired hand to be the heavy, but they'll respect you more if you can do it both. A question that I get a lot, which I'd be interested to get your opinion on, how does someone gain clarity on who they are and what their role in the world is? I'm not only getting clarity in certain things, uh, so I've already given away a program, I think the triggered downshift reframe, that could blow up, you know, and all I'm asking is if you heard that, please contact Colonel Chris Kalenda and uh, help him blow it up. And if I'm around, help us blow it up. Here's a transformational program. I'm just giving it away because I'm not going to do anything with it. It's the end of your life and you assess the three Ps. I come up with these threes a lot. And you look back, how'd you do professionally, personally, and purposefully? For me, professionally would be, was, was I able to support my family? And I did. Didn't make them rich, which I think was one of the best failings I've ever had. <laughs> Hopefully, I've helped anyone who ever worked with me to be able to support their families. I've been fortunate I've done a profession in which I don't think I would ever have to be ashamed of saving lives. I mean, so, you know, I'm somewhat proud of that. Personally, it's interesting. This is a work in progress, and I think the dying is helping get emotionally close to the people I love. I love my dad. I think my, uh, my dad loved me. We were not emotionally close. I can maybe think of two times in a lifetime when we were completely emotionally open to each other. It was a waste. Oh, we were shy. Oh, we were embarrassed. So personally, I I believe emotional intimacy. I think that's why people, when I start crying and I apologize, they say, don't apologize. It's because, you know, some of them say, you know, I love my wife, but that's more intimate than she and I have ever been. (laughs) You know, I, I mean, it's the real deal. So for me... I want to be able to say that uh, I was able to feel exquisitely emotionally close to someone and they to me. And then purposefully, was it good that I was born? Did I leave the world better? 
and I found it, and I think I may have. So here's the transformational program. And I get it all locked and loaded. I'm just not going to do it. So when you identify those three things, to me, transformation requires deleting the transactional present. Because the transactional present is myopic. Find the deal, do the deal, next deal. Make some money, buy some things, fill in the lack of intimacy with a Tesla and another house, and you're good to go until you become an alcoholic. And so if you can identify those three things, then you want to look back at each of them. What do I need to get those things going? So you get the three things, you reverse engineer, what do I need to do to get those things going? And the third element is you got to be accountable. There are other ways to be held accountable, but the two top ways to be held accountable to doing anything are to calendar it, schedule it, you know, because we usually don't flake on our calendar, and have an accountability partner. Uh, here's a funny story. I, I, I think I, I once reached out to my kids and I said, I'd like your help with something. I'd like to eat better and exercise more, but I'm not motivated. And if I knew you were doing things that really could help your life, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but you probably know what they are. What are some things that you could get better at? Because if I knew that you were doing those things that are helping your life, it would motivate me to you know, exercise, which I, I'm not a big fan of. And I love my children. One of them said, how about a golf shirt? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I love her for this kind of crazy thing. So, so you can have an accountability partner. And I think that would be great because I, I can tell you, uh, especially now, ooh, I might be able to get this deal done because my children want to need me to live longer. And I think the main motivator for me to uh, need to and want to live longer is uh, their needing and wanting me to and my wife feeling that way. Ah, oh, I was all set to go out in flames. <laughs> this leads to the rocket round where I've crafted 10 new questions just for you since you already answered the rocket round last time you were on here. So, number one, what piece of advice you were given do you think about the most? Well, I'm sure I shared this on the last show. I, I collect quotes and I get some doozies. The best quote I ever collected is, forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. People say, you don't need that, Mark. You're pretty forgiving. You're not judgmental. <laughs> hey, I've got a Jungian shadow just like yours. Down deep, I'm sure I got a chip on my shoulder. I'm a grudge holder. <laughs> Give me a break already. You know, let me be a, a full human being with all those flaws. But if you can accept an apology from someone you'll never receive. And when I heard that quote, I applied it to my dad who died at uh, 95. And he could be a tad critical and he could be a little bit diminishing saying uh, when I would come up with something creative, like every other minute, he, he would say, what makes you think you know anything about anything? And that's because he wasn't creative. He was a numbers person. And I felt that was kind of negative, but I know down deep, he didn't mean it. And so the apology that I've accepted that he never gave me was, remember when I used to say, what makes you think you know anything about anything? I was talking about myself. I'm good with numbers. I wasn't that good at getting close to people, especially your brothers and your mom. And I'm glad you were able to sort of fill in for what I wasn't. And so anytime you came up with something that wasn't like numbers that I was comfortable with, it made me nervous. And what you've done with your life, people you've touched, people you've saved, I don't deserve you as my son, and I'm sorry. And the fascinating thing is I realized that this quote cut both ways, because when I realized 
He would say that from where he is, that I owed him apology. Gee, Dad, I'm the psychiatrist in the family. You know, you can't expect this of anybody else. And I held a grudge against you. I used you as an excuse when you did the best you could. And I think your worries about being a good provider kind of made it difficult to do a lot of things. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, but I can finally say, uh, hey, Dad, I miss you. I love it. Number two, would you rather watch a morning sunrise or evening sunset? I'd rather watch a morning sunrise. And this is not an eloquent answer. I am one of the worst sleepers you'll ever run into. And sometimes I'll be up at 2, 3 in the morning, can't get back to bed. I have a big day ahead of me. You know, I've kind of created this monster now so that when I wake up at 3, I come up with five episodes for for my I'm Dying to Tell You (laughs) podcast. So at least it's productive, but I am exhausted. But there's something about the sun rising that just, okay, I made it. You know, apparently, uh, in spite of my circumstance, I have a lot of energy. Yeah, it's definitely the sunrise because when the sun sun goes down, it's like, oh, so am I going to get three hours sleep tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Number three, if you could relive one moment from your life, what would it be? Telling my dad to his face that I was sorry. Number four, if you could give everyone on earth a book with one message written inside... What would the message say? One of my fellow mentors, we share the same values. And I don't think it would be one message, but we share the same values. Be kind, be curious, get shit done. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I'm hitting you with some some tough questions on the spot as well. Number five, you might have already answered it with that one, but what's one thing we all have that we need to remind ourselves of more often? I don't know if it's the most eloquent, but something that we're teaching the people we know with PTSD and trauma, you may not have any control over how you react to a situation, but you always have a choice over how you respond to it. Number six, I'd be very interested to hear your answer on this one. What do you love most about yourself? I love how moved I am when I see people being kind to each other. It just touches me so deeply. It reaffirms in my mind that maybe there's hope for the future. Number seven, what are you most grateful for today? When you're tolerated by your wife, it can really feel painful until you realize how difficult you are, and then it's a gift. (laughs) I'm going to go and tell my wife that as, as soon as we're done here. Number eight, what's your last thought before you go to sleep each night? Please, God, help my family to worry less. Number nine, when you want to smile, what's your favorite music to put on? I want to dedicate this to my friend Susan Kane. Susan Kane wrote these mega bestsellers. One was called Quiet, The Power of Introverts, seven years on the bestseller list. And recently she has a, another book out called Bittersweet. And each of the books was a search to find out stuff that she thought was weird about her. She's an introvert. But it turns out that introverts do more for the world than extroverts. I mean, extroverts you know, may get stuff done, but you know, they're whatever. And she wrote Bittersweet because she wanted to know why sad music made her happy. And so this will really cheer everyone up. Although, you know, Larry King was one of my mentors, and he would say to me, you're so morose. <laughs> Larry, uh, he'll say it here. He'd go, oh, he'd roll his eyes. That's, you're so morose. There's <laughs> something about the theme from Schindler's List, you know, the, the violin thing. And to me, uh, that was hands down the most remarkable movie of all time. But I'm I'm Jewish culturally, and happy is not the word, but I'm just touched. And and I'm fortunate my son's a 
good piano player. And so when he comes over, if he plays that, I'm just the crying, but I'm not depressed. I'm just moved by it. It's just the... Feeling it. Mm. mm. And final question, number 10, what's one thing you think everyone should do to win the day? Someone I got to know a little bit was a fellow named Bob Eckert, and I knew him when he was the CEO of Mattel. And I interviewed him about, you know, what was some of the best leadership advice he'd ever heard. Uh, Before Mattel, he was the CEO of Kraft Food. And before that, he was the president of the cheese division, which was their biggest division. And Kraft is in Chicago, and he grew up in Chicago. And he said a couple months before he became the president of the cheese division, all the dairy prices went up. And so Kraft raised its prices. You know, and then a month later, the dairy prices went down and all the independents lowered their prices, but it was written into the bylaws that Kraft wouldn't do that. He had no control over that. And in his hometown newspaper, it said, heads are going to roll at Kraft. You know, the cheese division is gouging people's whatever. And he said he was really in a funk. And he was watching an NFL football game, and the Cincinnati Bengals had just lost their 10th in a row, and they'd gone to the Super Bowl two years earlier, and their coach was a guy named Sam Weish. And he said, I was just staring at the television, just out of it, and the reporter said, hey, Sam, you're going to be fired on Tuesday. What do you think of that? Because he thought heads were going to roll a craft. And he said, Sam looked out of the TV, I thought he was looking at me, and Sam said, It really doesn't matter. You know I'm going to be fired on Tuesday. I know I'm going to be fired on Tuesday. Everybody knows I'm going to be fired on Tuesday. The only thing that matters is what can I get done between now and Tuesday to make the Bengals a better team? And he said after that day, he adapted that so that, and one of the ways to help him go to sleep is before he'd go to sleep, he'd make a list and he'd say, what can I get done by the end of tomorrow to be a better dad, to be a better husband, to make Mattel a better company? And I'd write it down, and I'd be able to sleep, because even if I woke up and changed it, you know, I wouldn't be racing ahead to something, you know, that might or might not happen. He said that's what he was doing. You know, uh, I was racing ahead. Oh, my God, am I going to get fired at Kraft? And his whole approach would be, uh, what can I get done to make Kraft a better company? So I think one of the ways to win the day and maybe get some sleep is before you go to sleep, write down, do sort of a 360 of your role and say, what can I get done by the end of tomorrow to further my business, be better in my roles as a husband, a wife, a, a father, a mother, or a child to an aging parent and write those things down and then, you know, look at them in the morning and see what you want to do. So good. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Dr. Mark Goulston. I'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Mark Goulston. Grab a copy of all his books on Amazon and visit his website, markgoulston.com. An absolute pleasure, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on. Well, I'll see you from the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win the Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today. So drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. And if you found value in the Win the Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win the Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.